Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. We call this episode The Ban's Coming. That's because the Trump administration seems to be moving ahead at full steam to implement its ban on transgender troops. This ban will have immediate and devastating effects, and we have the latest. Then we're going to talk about a victory that will help ensure that people living with HIV can serve their country free of discrimination. Finally, we have a case involving U.S. citizenship for a child born to a same-sex couple in Canada. And with us, as always, is Professor Art Leonard. Art is chief editor and writer of Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT plus legal developments here and abroad. Hi, Art. Hi. Lots of news to get to. And before we even tee up the first segment, we wanted to go with a couple of very late-breaking kind of developments, particularly around on the legislative front. Can you give us a little bit of... of yeah, I, I should, An should explain to our, our longtime listeners that in the past we've tried to limit each podcast to the events of the previous month, but as production of Law Notes has drawn out a little longer because they're bigger and there's just too much going on, so it takes us almost to the middle of the next month. So we're recording this on the 14th of March, and there are some big developments that we just can't resist right. commenting on. Uh, one is that uh, just the other day uh, the Equality Act was reintroduced in Congress uh, the Equality Act is our main legislative priority uh, for the LGBTQ legal movement uh, and for the country, really, uh, because of the situation that in almost 30 states, people have no protection against discrimination unless, as we'll be covering later in this podcast, unless occasionally uh, a state law might be reinterpreted to assist us, although it's it's not definite. But... Uh, we only have about 20-odd states that ban sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination. The Equality Act would expressly amend all federal statutes that ban discrimination to include sexual orientation and gender identity as prohibited grounds. Mm -hmm. That would be like a major breakthrough if we were to get this through. And this is the first session of Congress in several sessions where we actually have a possible shot. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's likely that we can get this through the House, of course. There's a possibility we could get it through the Senate. The, the problem would be there have to be enough Republican senators up for re-election in 2020 who think it would be advantageous to them to have uh, this pass the Senate. And if they can prevail on uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to actually bring it to the floor, right. there's a possibility it would pass. And then the big question would be, will Trump sign it or will he veto it? Or will he choose the option, which Republican executives have sometimes chosen, of allowing it to become law without his signature? So we'll see. Uh, so that's one big story. The yeah, other we big don't story. really know how the politics of this is going to right. play out. For right. It's, it's, it's a new issue because the last session of Congress, no one voted on it because the Republicans controlled both houses. So I don't even think he got committee hearings. But this time around, it's high on Nancy Pelosi, uh, the uh, Speaker of the House's agenda. This was like her fifth legislative right. item. So this is going to get some attention. The other thing, and this is a repeating story to the point of, come on, guys, do your thing. This is The crazy. Supreme Court keeps bucking over <laughs> the LGBTQ-related cases from conference to conference without making any announcements. Uh, and adding, of course, as more uh, cert petitions get fully briefed. So we are now up 
to six cert petitions that are on the conference list for March 15th, tomorrow, as we're recording this, with an announcement possible on Monday. Uh, but so we keep saying that, and it keep keeps and they nothing. Keep, well, the fact that they haven't dismissed them any right. means that they're still considering them. Yeah. I mean, uh, none of them have been dismissed. So some of them we want to have granted, some of them we don't want to have granted. In right. fact, we'd rather that none of them be granted with the current court, but who knows. So we've got two sexual orientation cases uh, from the Second Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit. We've got a gender identity case coming up from the Sixth Circuit. Mm -hmm. We've got a Title IX uh, schools case coming up from the Third Circuit. We've talked about many of those before. And then uh, we have the uh, Hawaii bed and breakfast case coming up from the Hawaii Supreme Court, Uh, actually from the Hawaii Court of Appeals because the Supreme Court denied review. And then we've got the uh, And this is more First Amendment stuff, right? And we've got the case from Oregon, uh, another gay wedding cake case. Okay. uh, To uh, bring us back into contact with Masterpiece Cake Shop all over again. Oh, God. Uh, But this time with a rather cleaner record. Right. So we'll see uh, whether the court's interested in taking any of them. What about the conversion therapy-related cases? That hasn't been fully briefed yet. All right. Well, let's get right into what we want to focus on for the first segment, which is the very latest on the... Uh, transgender military ban. Um, so, as we've mentioned before, we've we've been bringing you the latest. And despite a remaining injunction, the Trump administration seems determined to implement its hateful transgender military ban, which had met with near universal defeat in several challenges, only to find support from conservative members of the Supreme Court. Um, Art, so can you give us the latest developments here? Yeah, I think we we reported last month that on January twenty second, the Supreme Court granted a motion by the government to stay the preliminary injunctions that have been issued by two federal district judges on the West Coast in Seattle and Riverside, California. Uh, At the time, the court dismissed as moot the motion to uh, stay the preliminary injunction from the District of Columbia District Court because on January 4th, the D.C. Circuit had issued a brief order stating that they were vacating the injunction and sending the case back because they disagreed with the district judge on the question of whether the version of the ban that Mattis recommended to the president in February 2018 was basically the same. Uh, So they asked her to reconsider that. But they indicated at the same time that opinions from some of the judges would follow. And it, it developed that they didn't send a mandate back down to the district judge because they were waiting for the opinions. Okay. And the opinions came out on March 8th. Mm. Uh, so too late for the March issue of Law Notes, but in time <laughs> for this for podcast. Yeah. And and it's really interesting. There are three judges on the panel, uh, Thomas Griffith, Robert Wilkins, and Stephen Williams. Mm. Griffith didn't write a separate opinion. So as far as we know, he agrees with Wilkins. Wilkins wrote an expanded version of the order that was issued, explaining why the court felt that based on the record before it, the judge had to anew uh, analyze the Mattis plan Mm -hmm. because the Mattis plan uh, is no longer an across-the-board ban. And what the president announced in his infamous tweet on July 26, 2017, was transgender, the U.S. government uh, announces that transgender people will not be allowed to serve in the military in any capacity. That was just an across-the-board ban, uh, all transgender people. Uh, The memo the president issued in August of 2017, following up with details, was still a complete ban. It just specified what what involves enlistment and when things take place, and it asked Mattis to come up with recommendations for implementation. Uh, So Mattis 
gave his plan to the president on February 22nd, 2018, uh, recommending that the president rescind his August memo and authorize Mattis to put into place something that was repurposed as a ban on service by people who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Uh, and based on the description of gender dysphoria in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, they were able to characterize it as this terribly debilitating condition that would obviously disqualify anyone from serving in the military. Uh, so they said, we're not banning transgender people. We're banning people who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria. Uh, then there are the people who are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, and they are divided into several groups. Okay. Uh, there are the people in the military who are now serving in the military who were diagnosed with gender dysphoria and who took advantage of the announcement by then-Secretary Carter in the end of June 2016 that transgender people can now serve and can transition in the military. They took advantage to get a formal diagnosis and to begin transitioning. And we're told that something fewer than a 1,000 uh, people uh, are directly affected in this category. And they are going to be grandfathered in. Okay. And this is, this is what shows the ridiculousness of the overall policy because the, uh, they're not going to allow people who have been diagnosed with gender dysphoria and who haven't transitioned to transition because they say people with gender dysphoria uh, are not suitable to serve in the military unless they've already transitioned, mm. which is odd. It's it's the same thing with the enlistment ban. Right. Uh, the enlistment ban, people who identify as transgender can enlist as long as they make it perfectly clear they don't have gender dysphoria, they're not going to get a diagnosis, they're not planning to transition. They can. It's sort of like a don't ask, don't tell policy, although you're allowed to say you identify as transgender. But as long as you haven't been diagnosed, you can enlist. Mm. Uh, but people who have been diagnosed and have transitioned before applying to enlist may not enlist right. because they've been diagnosed with gender dysphoria, you see, and that's disqualifying unless you're grandfathered, which is all bizarre. Yeah. I mean, the rationale for all of this is bizarre. As, as the same thing with the HIV stuff, which we'll see in the next segment. So uh, uh, it was announced that Mattis was going to implement that plan, and the government filed these motions to uh, dismiss all of the uh, preliminary injunctions that have been granted around the country. Uh, four different district courts had granted them on the grounds that the new policy was no longer a ban of transgender people. That's the, been their position ever since, uh, which they articulated this week when they announced they're gonna implement. Uh, so this March 8th decision that came out from the DC Circuit, the opinion by Judge Wilkins just explains why they why the, the panel uh, considers that the preliminary injunction against the August memo, which is what the preliminary injunctions were issued against, mm -hmm. is no longer really salient because now we have a new policy to discuss. So they are uh, remanding it. But one of the judges who really should have been listed as dissenting in part is Judge Williams, who went a step further mm -hmm. in his opinion. Uh, and I think the likely step now is we're going to have, we could flood the courts with individual lawsuits from people who are being processed for discharge because these discharges are totally unjustified. Mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, and it's going to be a lot of work for a lot of volunteer attorneys all over the country. But I think if the courts get flooded, if the district courts just get flooded with cases on behalf of these people, first, of course, the internal military system gets flooded with it, uh, protesting the discharges and appealing them up, uh, because uh, what's happened is on March 8th, the court issued this decision, but it had previously said that the plaintiffs will have 21 days after the issuance of this decision to file a motion for on-bank review if they want to. Okay. And it sounds like the court's not going to issue its mandate to the district court until the end of that 21-day period. And if they file for on-bank review, it's possible for an extended period beyond that, which means the original preliminary injunction is technically still in effect. But the Trump administration announced on Tuesday of this week, March 12th, they issued this lengthy memorandum. It's available on the Defense Department's website. It's like on the entry page of the website. This is the big thing. Wow. Uh, explaining it. Uh, they say April 12th is, is implementation day. You know, they've counted their three weeks and a little extra time to allow the mandate to be given. And they're assuming that the injunction will be gone. Uh, now... This brought screams of outrage from plaintiffs' counsel in the case. Mm -hmm. They said, just a minute, there's still an injunction. Yeah. You can't announce implementation. So they filed a motion with the judge, uh, Judge uh, Colleen... Colarcatelli. Colarcatelli yeah. in D.C. I always have trouble with her name. Mm -hmm. uh, so they filed a motion with her asking her to reaffirm that her preliminary injunction remains in effect because she hasn't received the mandate yet. And she turned to the Justice Department and said, can you please respond to this motion this week? Yeah. You know, so something might happen that later this week. But in the meantime, uh, the government has announced that they're going to implement the ban. And it affects different people differently. It affects people who haven't had a diagnosis of gender, uh, gender dysphoria differently from those who identify as transgender and have had a diagnosis or are planning to transition, Right. it means there's going to have to be some case-by-case -case determination in deciding whom to discharge and whom not to discharge. And then there are going to be appeals, definitely, and there is going to be lawsuits. Yeah. And, uh, so there's going to be a lot to report. Yep, case-by-case, uh, -case, but all arbitrary and cruel. Yeah. Um, all right, well... We will continue to keep everyone up to date on the very latest developments on this issue, um, but not a lot of good news right now at the moment. Uh, so we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll have another case involving uh, access to serve. Great, and we're back. So Lambda Legal and OutServe SLDN filed a lawsuit in federal court in Virginia on behalf of two HIV-positive members of the U.S. Air Force who were given discharge orders just before the holiday season. And in a major victory against the Department of Defense and the Trump administration, the federal court halted the discharge proceedings. The case challenges the administration's discriminatory deployment policies which prevent service members with HIV from deploying outside the U.S. without a waiver. This policy is not based on science, but on stigma, and Art has the latest for us. So tell us about this case, Art. Okay, so uh, U.S. District Judge Leonia M. Brinkema in uh, the Eastern District of Virginia, February 15th ruling, uh, she said, basically, uh, they don't have any factual justification of what they're doing. I mean, what we have here... Uh, and they're using the pseudonyms of Richard Rowe and Victor Vo, so they don't get outed as HIV positive to the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and also, uh, the 
OutServe SLDN is a not just a representative but a plaintiff in this case on behalf of all others similarly situated. Which is smart. So this is really more like a class action. Right. Because we're talking about a policy, not an individual determination, and that's a crucial aspect of the case. Okay. Because the Air Force is claiming, and these are both airmen, the Air Force is claiming that they make an individual determination, that they do not have a general policy regarding HAV, that they make an individual determination. However, it seems their individual determination is based on an across-the-board uh, <laughs> policy, you know, maybe not set down in stone anywhere, but it's a policy, that they will not deploy overseas anyone with a serious medical condition, and they consider HIV infection a serious medical condition, regardless of the state of health of the individual. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's clear when you look at the case, and Judge Brinkema uh, spends a lot of time in her opinion going through the record on the medical testimony and everything else, the experts brought by the plaintiffs, and she says uh, one of the things that's distinctive about the government's opposition to this case is they haven't produced any expert testimony in opposition yet. <laughs> you know, they, they want they want to argue that the military should be the sole judge of who is fit to serve. Uh, that's the same argument that they're making basically in the transgender case. And that the court should defer to that, that there is a division of authority between the political branches and the judiciary, and the Constitution gives to the political branches, to Congress, the power to raise armies and prescribe rules for the army and the president to be the commander-in-chief. And the judiciary has no role in national defense other than occasionally to step in and to check egregious abuses of the Constitution. But basically, the position is that the judiciary should defer. In fact, that's Judge Williams in his uh, concurring opinion in the D.C. Uh, D.C. Circuit on the transgender. He says the same thing. He goes on about you know the constitutions, this, that, and the other. And in this case, uh, the Defense Department is quoting a specific uh, provision about the fitness. You know that, that the military has to have people who are fit and everything. And they say that you can't just send people off around the world when they have a, uh, a, a an incurable infection like HIV, although now we've had some miracle cures. Uh, but I don't think they're going to be doing bone marrow transplants right away for uh, airmen with HIV. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, they're basically saying, we can't send them overseas. What if they are off their meds and they suddenly develop immune deficiency and you know and and so there's evidence in here that if someone discontinues their meds it takes a while it's not like overnight you collapse mm -hmm. if someone who has been maintained with uh, undetectable level of HIV which is just about anyone on uh, the, the current re regimen uh, it can take weeks to months for someone to develop some symptoms because of viral uh, increase. But it doesn't happen overnight. And furthermore, the military is acting as if this is the 1980s when there was no effective treatment or the early 90s when you know you had some things that had to be refrigerated and all this kind of stuff and maybe it would have been difficult in some postings. But today it's just a bunch of pills. And it's pills that should be in the formulary for any military medical establishment anywhere in the world where we have soldiers mm -hmm. and sailors. Yeah. Although uh, she limited her, uh, her injunctive relief here to the Air Force. 
Okay. Uh, not even the Air Reserve, because they, they tried to add another co-plaintiff from the Air Reserve and she right. said, but we don't have any record evidence about his medical condition. You know, as to these, they had full record evidence that these, these are people who are fully compliant and their viral load is undetectable and they're perfectly healthy and they were doing fine. And it was until they got a diagnosis of HIV and all of a sudden now they're treated like pariahs and they can't go overseas and everything. And these are people who served overseas. Mm -hmm. These are people who have good service records. They have a lot of time in. They've been out uh, since the Don't Ask, Don't Tell was repealed. You know, and uh, so no those problem. are with respect to those two does, right? But what and about they, the? They were infected in the military. I see. Because uh, they're they're tested every year. Yeah. In the military for HIV is. What of about their the class plaintiffs? The so class plaintiffs. The... Uh, well, she said we don't know about their individual medical condition, but in terms of the preliminary injunction that she's right. giving here, she says uh, the underlying policy. The plaintiffs have made a very, very strong case that the underlying policy is not rational. And she says, even if I use rational basis, the lowest level of scrutiny because of military deference and everything, this is not a rational policy. This is not a policy that seems to be based on current science. Right, yeah. This is a policy that's based on old science that's yeah. obsolete yeah. to the extent that it's based on science at all. And so she says there, there's irreparable injury here. And the Defense Department argues, no, there's no irreparable injury. If you put them back, you know, they can get back pay. She says, no, you're interrupting their careers. Mm, okay. You know, and yeah. interrupting the career in the military, that's uh, interrupting abilities for promotion and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they also, uh, the Defense Department also tried to claim that they didn't have standing because they hadn't been discharged. They'd just been told that when their current uh, term of enlistment ends, they're not going to be allowed to re-enlist. Wow. Well, that's basically the same thing. Yeah. And she said, and furthermore, while this case has been pending, the military has extended their terms. <laughs> so they haven't been gone out yet. So this isn't a re-enlistment situation. And she said that's another way of distinguishing the extra plaintiff that they wanted to add, the reserve member, because his enlistment has expired. So now with him, it's about re-enlistment. So she says it's a different issue. Okay. So no preliminary injunction there. Good. All right. So we got a we have we some victory. we've we got some, a victory. Something good is still happening in federal court. Yes, and we have something else for our next segment. Great. Something and so good. let's take a break, and we'll be back with that something else. Great. So we're back for our last segment before we do our of note segment. Uh, we have a U.S. district court finding that a child born through gestational surrogacy to a male same-sex couple then living in Canada was entitled to U.S. citizenship at birth. Art, tell us about this win. Yeah, this is a very interesting case. So uh, Andrew Banks, who's American-born, U.S. native-born U.S. citizen, happened to be studying in Israel. And he met Ilad Devash. In Israel, they fell in love, same-sex couple. Uh, You can't get married in Israel at the time they met, which was 2008, but you could get married in Canada. And, in fact, there was uh, a lot of stories at the time in the gay press about same-sex couples from Israel going to Canada to get married. And then they came back, and there was a whole big to-do about issuing them new identity cards showing that they were married. So, like, Israel recognizes these same-sex marriages, even though Israel doesn't technically have marriage equality. Right. Uh, but they're eligible for the benefits and everything. But okay. at, at any rate, uh, Andrew's study uh, concluded and they decided to go back to Canada. Uh, you know, they got married there and they decided to start a family and they were expecting to move back to the U.S. eventually uh, to be near Andrew's family. Uh, 
but in Canada, of course, uh, we, they've had marriage equality by uh, federally since 2005. So things are much more settled there on a lot of stuff. And of course, for uh, two gay men to have a kid, they need a surrogate. And they decided to do gestational surrogacy. And that way, you know, the surrogate has less of a claim to sort of overturn the apple cart because it's not her egg. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, they each donated sperm. And it was mixed up and used uh, to, uh, uh, to conceive uh, what turned out to be twins. Okay. And at the time the twins were born, it was uncertain who was the father of each. Mm -hmm. And they didn't want to know. They figured there's no need for us to know. Yeah. And as far as Canadian law was concerned, there was no need for them to know. They went into court and they got a court order that both of them would be named on the birth certificate as yep. the parents. Right. Okay. So then a few weeks later, uh, they go to the uh, U.S. consulate to register the birth because you register the overseas birth of children of a U.S. citizen and Andrew's a U.S. citizen. Yep. And, uh, and uh, Elad, as his Canadian spouse, will eventually qualify as a U.S. citizen. Uh, uh, but uh, they wanted the kids to be recognized. And there is a somewhat complicated statutory scheme uh, governing the citizenship status of children born abroad. If they have uh, one parent who's an American citizen and the other parent is not married to the American citizen, then only those who are actually biological descendants of the American citizen can claim birthright citizenship. Okay. All right. How do you handle this when you have two gay men and you have gestational surrogacy? So the only possible biological tie to the U.S. is the father whose sperm you know, so you have to, so the, the, the local council, the U.S. council, you know, they, they asked the State Department for advice. How do we handle this? They said, well, uh, you, you, they've got to prove who's the biological father. So they reluctantly went through genetic testing and everything, and they figured out that Andrew is the father of one and Elad is the father of the other. Wow. So the consulate said, okay, uh, the one who Andrew is the biological father of it has birthright citizenship, and we will register them. Uh, and they can come in to the U.S. as uh, a citizen. The other one does not get birthright citizenship. And although Andrew is the legal father under Canadian law, there's a question, will the U.S. recognize him as the father under U.S. law? I would say under Obergefell, the answer should be yes, and I think ultimately the court says so too. Uh, but what about his status? He's not the biological child. And... So Andrew and Elad point to the provision that governs children who are born abroad to a married couple right. where one is an American citizen. Yeah. And if it's a married couple where one is an American citizen, uh, the statute says that the children are born presumed are presumed. To. Yeah. And more than presumed, they are yeah. entitled to be registered as U.S. citizens. But that's the statute. And there's a, uh, an internal document in the uh, Justice Department, uh, the family uh, manual of some sort. It isn't even a regulation. I mean, it's, it's just guidance for the consulates, you know, how to administer this. And they said, uh, even if it's a married couple, we want proof that at least one of the parents is the biological parent of the child. 
And so they refused. Uh, and so, and it's weird because they moved to the U.S. Right. And of course, Andrew comes in back as a citizen. Andrew's biological son comes back as a citizen. Elad uh, comes in as the spouse of an American citizen, and the child comes in on a visitor's visa. That's outrageous. Which, of course, so, expired pretty quickly. So the yeah. child is undocumented at the moment. So they went to court, uh, you know, to, okay. to challenge this. Uh, and they're in the Central District of California. They live in California. Okay. And they showed up before a judge, John F. Walter, who said, hey, come on, State Department, what are you doing here? This is ridiculous. I, the whole idea of this overseas registration and everything and allowing people to bring children in and everything. This is about keeping families together. Of course. This is a family. They've been living as a family. Jeez, what a surprise that yeah. the State Department is trying to keep yeah. families apart. Well, you know who the defendant is here. Mm-hmm. It's versus Pompeo. <laughs> so, you know, this is yet another case where we have to ask, when is the federal government going to fully comply with the Obergefell decision? Because in Obergefell, Justice Kennedy said, same-sex marriages are to be treated as the same, identical to different-sex marriages. And just to bring the point home, in the follow-up of Vaughn versus Smith, the court per curiam over three dissents, but, you know, it's like the far right wing of the court And now maybe five. Uh, No, (laughs) not Roberts didn't dissent. Uh, okay. And Roberts right. has been sort of casting votes with the Democrats uh, on a few things. Don't give us any... Well, we can be hopeful. <laughs> but at any rate, uh, under Obergefell, you would think that they would treat this family like any other family. Kennedy's opinion was made children of same-sex couples central to that right. decision. Right, that, that was one of the concerns. He, said, he listed the four factors that you look at in, dis- in determining that the right to marry is a fundamental right, and one of them was because of the children. Mm-hmm. And the children's uh, have have a strengthened situation if their parents are married to each other, and are deemed to be related to them. You know, uh, so uh, this is a, a good result. Now the State Department, of course, can appeal it. The decision was in February 21. I haven't heard anything yet about an appeal. Okay, so so uh, let's take a break and we'll go to our. <laughs> oh, are you notes. doing my job now? Yeah, because <laughs> you're lingering here and it's turning into a long podcast. All right, all right, we won't linger. So uh, let's take a break and when we come back, we'll have our note segment. We're back. Tell us about the of note segment, Art. Well, the the of note segment is, and this emanates from the strangest place possible, the Missouri Supreme Court. You know, one of the reasons we need the Equality Act is because there are close to 30 states that have no protection explicitly under their civil rights laws for LGBTQ people. Uh, Missouri is pretty typical of that, relatively conservative state, although they've occasionally elected Democrats in the state level and to the Senate, but pretty Republican as far as the legislature goes. Uh, so they've got a, a traditional civil rights law that covers sex. All right, there were two cases that came up pretty much simultaneously to the Missouri Supreme Court, resulting in decisions uh, that were issued on February 26th. Just made it to the March issue of Law Notes. And one of them involved a gay man who had a discrimination claim under the Missouri Civil Rights Law, didn't cite Title VII, didn't want to get removed to federal court. Okay. And his employer is a state agency which will be covered by Title VII. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you're in the Eighth Circuit there, and there's no good Eighth mm-hmm. Circuit precedent on sex, sexual orientation. So he files under the uh, Missouri Civil Rights Law. And in his narrative, in his filing uh, with the commission, he says, I'm a gay man who has been discriminated against because of my sex. 
and I, I do not comply with the stereotypes that people have for men. Uh, and so he's bringing a sex stereotyping case. And the district judge throws him out. The commission throws him out. And the district judge throws him out uh, on uh, the grounds that the law doesn't cover sexual orientation. And he appeals to the Missouri Supreme Court. He says, look, I'm complaining about sex discrimination. Right. All right. And the other case involves a transgender student. Hmm. Uh, didn't file under Title IX. Filed under the Missouri Civil Rights Act. Says the school is a public accommodation. The restrooms are public accommodations. I should be able to use the restroom. He said, I am a transgender boy, and I am being excluded from the boys' room. Yeah. And that's sex discrimination. Right. Okay. And got thrown out, got thrown out, although the commission seemed to be more receptive, but the court wasn't, the district court. But it goes to the Supreme Court. All right. The court was very split here. We don't have clear majorities saying that uh, sexual orientation discrimination is sex discrimination or gender identity discrimination is sex discrimination. What we have is a plurality of the court that says we follow the sex stereotyping theory that the Supreme Court put out in Price Waterhouse, and we think that if someone alleges in their complaint that they are being discriminated against because of their sex, because of their failure to comply with sex stereotypes, that's enough to get them past the motion to dismiss. Mm, okay. Okay. Uh, there was a concurring judge to give them a majority on the seven-member court of four to three. There's a concurring judge who says, I agree that if you allege these things, you get past the motion to dismiss, but I think the majority, the plurality went further than they had to in saying that we're going to follow the Title VII case law that's been developed under Price Waterhouse. We aren't there yet. This is too early in the case to do that. Okay. But I agree that he has pled enough to get past the motion to dismiss. Uh, and, of course, some vehement dissents. Then you go to the uh, transgender case. And here it was the judge who wrote that concurring opinion that gave them the majority in the other case who writes now for, I think, five members of the court, at least, out of the seven, uh, although there's a very strong dissent as well. But he says, okay, he alleges he's a boy. He was excluded from the boys' room because of his sex. That's a sex discrimination claim. Uh, the district court shouldn't have thrown that out on a motion to dismiss. You know, maybe these cases will get wiped out on motions for summary judgment later on, but first we'll have some discovery. Wow. And... Uh, I think the fact that the uh, the defendants in both case, cases are public sector defendants, one is a state agency, the other one is a public school, maybe that had something to do with, this, with the court's approach, but uh, it wasn't emphasized in any way. But I think this is a hopeful sign. Here is a state Supreme Court that didn't just toss the case on the grounds that a gay person can't get relief yeah, or a transgender person can't re- get relief. They said... You're, you're also a person, and you're, if you're being discriminated against because of sex, it doesn't matter whether you're gay or you're trans. It's sex discrimination, and that's what we've been fighting for in the Title VII and the Title IX cases. Wow. So we'll see. Missouri Supreme Court. Interesting. As the, federal, as the federal courts become more and more hostile, yeah. it is interesting to be covering some of these state Supreme Courts where a lot of these cases um, are going to play out. And... 
it's also interesting to look at, you've got Missouri, which has the Missouri plan. They're a nonpartisan kind of merit selection state. Right. Uh, Supreme Court justices don't rise because they are particularly ideological. Um, and so that may have something to do with the fact that, you know, there's kind of a more fair and neutral approach to decision making versus some of yeah. the kind of partisan elected judges that you would see out of the Alabama Supreme Court dealing with this issue, for example. Yeah, or the Arkansas Supreme Court. Or the Arkansas Supreme Court. <laughs> or the Texas is, Supreme Court. Or the Texas Supreme Court. But, um, but we should also note as we're finishing up that uh, Trump's campaign to stock up the federal courts with ultra-right-wing judges continues apace. And just this mm -hmm. week, there have been some new confirmations uh, to the courts of appeals. Right. So there I are, think he's confirmed about 36 court of judges to the courts of appeals, which is as many as Obama had yeah. halfway into his second term. Right. It's supposedly uh, about 20%. And there are some... There were some circuits that Obama had succeeded just in his first term before the total Stonewall went into effect practically. Right. Uh, he had succeeded in turning some traditionally historically conservative courts in a much more liberal direction, especially the Fourth Circuit. Yeah. But uh, Trump has been busy stocking up those courts because uh, McConnell uh, held up on confirmations, mm -hmm. and so there were a lot of vacancies. I mean, one of the reasons that, that Trump is able to have so many judges is because there were so many vacancies, yeah. and so many had, that were declared judicial emergencies, uh, where they, you know, they had so many uh, senior district judges sitting on three-judge panels because they didn't have enough judges. All right, this th we were ending on a good note. Let's not get big. <laughs> so that's great. Well, thank you so much for listening, Art. Thank you for giving us the latest. Um, this and future podcasts can be found on iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. We'll be back very soon with the next episode of the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>